You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Good morning. It's uh, good to be back here. Uh, some of you have been on the uh, other two classes, and so you know a little bit about what I'm trying to do here in this series. But for the first of you, let me go back and re- sort of touch on that issue again. Uh, a number of months ago, I read this book called Aris Vitae, The Face of Inwardness and the Return of the Ancient Art of Living by Elizabeth Lash Quinn, a professor at Notre Dame. It's a brilliant book, I think, very thoroughly researched, and she's got some really good points to make. And it got me thinking about some ideas as it pertains to the life of the church, even though this is not from a Christian perspective, though, uh, here in modernity. And I've come up with this series to do so. The overall theme of what I'm trying to accomplish in this is that we have some profound problems in our society that we're dealing with. And I'll talk more about those in just a second. And I think that those problems exist for a reason. They're not just accidentally occurring to us. That what we're experiencing here in modernity, in our contemporary society, is the exhaustion of some ideas that have played themselves out, that have been around in our society for a long time, and they have exhausted their ability to enrich the human spirit, to fortify the human society, and we're experiencing what an author is going to say here in just a minute here, uh, a driftness in our culture. And so what I'm, going to, what I'm trying to do is to look at what those ideas are, that are fundamental at the basis of our society, and what can we as Christians, what should the church say in light of the sort of disarray, disentanglement, dissolving of our contemporary society? What is it we have to offer? Now, I'll say this, and uh, I, I said it earlier, that our, our goal as a church is not to make, quote, a Christian nation. Our goal as the church is to convert people to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's why there is a church. We're not politicians. We're not sociologists. We're not nation builders. What we are are witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ and what the gospel offers to the human soul. And so how can we do that in a society that is adrift? This is the title of it, Christianity Admits the Culture Wars. One second. It's my computer and I can't even work it out. Here it goes. All right. Here's this book I referred to by sociologist marketing professor at NYU, Scott Galloway, called Adrift. And I think it's an incredibly brilliant analysis of what's going on in contemporary society. And I've referred to it the previous two classes. And I want to look at a couple of things that he says here. It It is filled with 100 charts that he collected from all kinds of sources here representing how our culture has become adrift. All right, uh, here's a paragraph, one of the paragraphs that he opens the the book with. What the data tells me is not complicated. America is a work in progress, but it's made the most progress towards its ideals. It's become the most like itself when it has invested in a strong middle class. There, that's my grand economic theory, a strong middle class. 
And what he tries to show with these 100 graphs and his commentary upon those graphs is how the middle class is under tremendous stress in our society. That's what's happening at the core of what keeps our institutions, our family life, our education together is, in a sense, under attack. My thesis, and based upon some of the things I got from this book here, is the reason why that is happening, the reason why the middle class is under stress in our society, is that some ideas have, which have permeated our society have exhausted themselves. They no longer can enrich the human spirit and fortify human society. We looked at Gnosticism. Come in, have a seat. There are some chairs, empty chairs over here, a few over here. Um, we first of all looked at Gnosticism. And last week, I looked at Epicureanism, ancient ideas that have become part of our society. And what I'm going to look at today, and I didn't change what was put into the order of service, uh, what I'm going to look at is called cynicism, the effects of cynicism in our society, and how can we rightly respond to it. Next Sunday, I'm going to look at what I call the homo oconemia, which is the economic person, and look at what's happening economically in our society, how it is, in a sense, causing us also to be adrift, and how can we respond to it. All right, here are a couple of more graphs that I want to look at. Some of these are very alarming and unsettling to consider what's happening in our society. This one has to do with turning away from community organizations in our society. In 1990, it was estimated 68% of our society belonged to churches. Now, in the year 2020, it's probably even less, only 47%. So that's a drop of a little over 20 percent in 30 years. Yeah. Uh, in 1990, uh, 22% of all boys and 13% of all girls, I mean, excuse me, 22 out of 1,000 uh, boys and 13 out of 1,000 girls belong to Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. Now, only 6 out of 1,000 boys belong to Boy Scouts and 7 out of 1,000 girls. In 1995, 1.5 people per 1,000 belong to Rotary Clubs. Now only one out of 1,000 belong to Rotary Clubs. Uh, in the year 2008, it was estimated, now how they got this information, this comes from the Gallup poll, 71% uh, of the people in 2001 talked to their neighbors. Now in, two, well, in 2017, and it's probably a lot worse now, that had dropped to 54% of people talk to their neighbors. That was in 2017. Well, what that shows is that we're becoming less and less involved with other people, especially when it has to do with talking to neighbors. That's becoming harder and harder for us to do. Another statistic, uh, this one comes from American Perspective Survey that uh, in... 1990, with men, it was estimated that men had, that 40% of all men in our society had 10 or more friends in 1990. In 2021, only 15% of men in our society have 10 or more friends. With women, and I found this kind of interesting in comparison to men, in 1990, 28% uh, of women had 10 or more friends. 
by year 2021, only 11% had 10 or more friends. All right, one more. Institutions, this is one of his conclusions. Here are a couple of chairs over here. Um, institutions, another key feature that distinguishes us from less successful species, are now seen as harmful. They no longer are the mechanisms that put us on the moon or turn back Hitler, but entities to be distrusted and defunded. And this is a self-fulfilling prophecy as they become less effective. Distrust and the lack of connections have resulted in system failures. Specifically, the central compact of our society has been broken in America. For the first time in our nation's history, 30-year-olds are not doing as well as their parents at the same age. Young men are failing, while the old and rich weaponize tax and regulatory policies to protect their wealth and, and steal the gale of creative destruction. We are not just lonely, that implies a recognition that we need to be with others. We have no collective vision. We are adrift. That's his conclusion. We are adrift. Now, you may not be, but the data here suggests in our society that we're experiencing that. Okay, And why is that? Like I said, we have adopted in our modern post-enlightenment culture, informed by sort of free market with a democratic system here, ideas that we think will bring fulfillment to us. And what I'm contending here is that those ideas work for a while, but they don't have enough energy. They don't have enough stamina. They don't have resources to continue to replenish themselves. All right. Uh, I had mentioned that I think we should, as the Christians, as the church, affirm these basic truths that our fundamental creeds have taught us over these centuries. These are not extraneous to the Bible. In fact, they are, I think, a clear interpretation of the Bible. And one of these is the Apostles' Creed. I'm not going to recite the Apostles' Creed to, to you, but I think there are four fundamental truths that the church should stand upon, especially in the time of conflict in our culture. What can we offer to our society that is becoming exhausted, adrift? One, that creation is good. I'll talk more about that in a minute. One, redemption is real. It's not made up. It's not just a perspective. Two, history has a purpose. We don't live in a meaningless world. It's fraught with sin and corruption, but nonetheless, God is still the Lord over human history. And then finally, eternal life is possible. That there is a meaning that exceeds even our own time. All right, with that, I'm going to fast forward through some slides here, so don't make. I'm not going to try to make you dizzy here. And what I want to look at today is cynicism. It's actually an ancient philosophical movement that has persisted in many forms throughout the culture. And today one could call it, let's say, postmodernism. I'll talk about some representatives of modern cynicism in just a second. But again, but it begins with the man there on the right, Antiosthenes, who was uh, actually a student of Socrates, but it broke away from a lot of the teachings of Socrates and began to think that there was no knowledge of the good itself. He had an influence on another particular philosopher named Diogenes, uh, and he was the first one to be called cynic. And if you know your Greek, the word cynic is actually for the word dog. 
Diogenes the dog. And the reason why they called him a dog is that he became so disgruntled and disaffected with the customs of society. He felt like it was all kind of worthless and oppressive on him, that he thought that he could live a happy life by living like a dog. And so whatever, and I'm not going to fill in the blanks, you do it, whatever you see a dog do in public, that's what he would do. Hence, he was called a dog. Now, he had uh, uh, total rejection of all kind of customs. It didn't bother him that what he was doing was shameful because he thought society was shameful. Uh, he felt like he was a citizen of the world. He didn't belong to you know, Athens or Corinth or Greece or anywhere. He, he belonged wherever a dog would belong. Dogs don't, don't claim nation states. They just go wherever they want to go. And he felt the same way. And he didn't think there was any purpose to life. It's just what we make of the moment. So he mocked culture. He mocked customs. He felt like they were you know, bogus to begin with. Shameful at worst. And lived his own life, in a sense, a ridicule of what was going on in society. He had a, a disciple named Crates of Thebes, and these are considered the three great exponents of cynicism in ancient Greek society. Now that, in some ways, persisted on the fringes of culture for the longest. But this notion that all of our life is just but custom, and that uh, it is not only superficial, but harmful to us, and should be ridiculed what it is, because there is no real truth, there's just what we make of it, has always been around, but it has flourished here, in what one could call the post-Enlightenment period. In our Western society, you know, the Enlightenment was basically from the 17th and 18th century, the appreciation of science, of autonomous reasoning, and so on, flourished for a while. And then after, in particular, World War I, uh, and then World War II, there was this recognition that there's something corrupt about our Western society, there's something perverse in, in the human spirit. We cannot trust our customs and our institutions. And so there was a reaction against the modernity, the, the, the Enlightenment period. And this is therefore called post-modernism. And I'm only going to look at, mentioned here very briefly here, two representatives of what one could call modern cynicism. And one is Friedrich Nietzsche. You probably have heard of Nietzsche, a very, very influential, famous philosopher from Germany, died in the year 1900. Uh, when I was a sophomore in college, uh, I was not only young, but excessively dumb. Uh, I read Nietzsche, and I overnight became a Nietzschean, and also became infallible. Uh, he had an incredibly <laughs> persuasive writing style, uh, acerbic uh, wit, and sort of piercing analysis of things. Uh, and he has become quite influential, even though he himself was a rather tortured, unhappy person. But here are a few of his ideas. He was a very astute critique of bourgeois society in Europe. Felt like it was decadent. Like you, you know, if you have a rose, you cut it off. The rose will flower for a while, but it is decaying, hence it is decadent. And he felt like Western society, with the presumption of being rational and scientific and humanitarian, was decaying. And so in many ways, his, his observations of what was going on in society, I've always thought were rather insightful. Because the culture that prided itself of being sophisticated, intelligent, informed, and scientific, just, you know, 18 years after his death, was trying to murder one another to such a vast scale that it was unimaginable. 
and that was World War One. So in a sense, he is accurate about that. And there's always been a grain of truth in cynicism that we do live in a corrupt world. He also argued that there are only perspectives. There's no real truth. We just quote after quote after quote. We never get to reality itself. We just have perspectives about it. Secondly, he, he wrote this book called The Genealogy of Morals, which I think is one of his best books. What he tries to do is that he looks at our moral codes and our virtues and he you know, tries to find, where did these come from? Why do we think courage is a good thing? Why do you think loving your neighbor is a good thing? And what he does in his analysis is that he goes to the beginning of it, like if you do your family tree, where did you come from? And what he says at the beginning of this is conflict, not understanding. It's combating. It's the master and the slave struggling with one another. And the master wins and determines what's the moral code and makes the slave live accordingly. Fourthly, God must be dead. For you to be God, there can't be a God. How can you own your own life if there's a God who is the Lord of your life? How can you be the master of your own soul if there's a creator of the universe? So you have to deny God to really affirm yourself. No transcendence. And then finally, when it all boils down to it, it's the will to power. There are those who are strong enough to assert themselves and then those who are weak who cannot. Who survives? The strong people survive. All right, that's Nietzsche. He's had a profound influence. I, I, I obviously think there's some you know, serious weaknesses to his thinking. But he does represent this kind of modern cynicism. All right, here's another influential philosopher named Michael Foucault. Maybe you've run across his name. It appears in all kinds of places. He was educated as a philosopher, but you know, technically he's not really a philosopher. He's more of a kind of a cultural... Uh, analyzer, uh, uh, analyzer uh, literary critic, uh, but incredibly influential uh, Frenchman, taught at Sorbonne, University of Paris most of his life. He taught at University of California, Berkeley for several years, died in 1984. And in some ways, I've read not everything that he has written, but quite a bit. Uh, he, is, he, he is an incredibly creative author. There is something attractive about what he's trying to do. He writes these books about crime and mental illness and surveillance. He feels that what the categories that we have for the mentally insane and for criminals were all made up by the powerful. There's nothing objective about mental illness or crime. These were all sort of fabricated by people who dominate over other people. And at the bottom of it, if you're an archaeologist and you're after something, you're keep digging down to where you want to go. If we keep digging down to all these big categories of, of who, who's, who's a good citizen and who's a criminal, who's mentally balanced and who's mentally insane, who's in control and who's being surveyed, he actually felt that there was a worldwide surveillance system keeping the poor under control that what we find is this struggle of the powerful to suppress the weak. All institutions then are but an embodiment of that struggle. And in the end, all that you have is just yourself. That's all that you have. All this other stuff out there is a cauldron. It's a battlefield. And in the end, what you need to do is just affirm yourself. It's the supremacy of the self for Foucault. Very influential. And this is part of, I think, contemporary cynicism. Don't trust institutions. Don't trust people in control. 
Don't trust the church. Don't trust the government. Don't trust education. All these are but just sort of frontline battles of people trying to oppress you. Here are two. Uh, one's a work of art and the other one is an artist. Uh, any ever seen pictures of this skull here on the left? For the Love of God by Damien Hirst, an English artist. Uh, this was done in t the year 2007. Uh, it is fantastic. I've not seen it. In fact, it's, it's not displayed right now. I'll tell you why it is so significant. Uh, that is actually a human skull with human teeth. I'm not sure how Damien Hurst got it, but he did. And what he did, he put one, he put 8,601 flawless diamonds on it. It's valued close to 50 million pounds. Not dollars, but pounds. Uh, it took him 12 million pounds to make it. It's in storage someplace in London right now. It's been exhibited on a number of times. You can go and buy a hand-signed print of it for ten thousand to five fifty. I mean, for yeah, ten thousand to fifteen thousand dollars. Now, the title of it is that is for the love of God. Doesn't have anything to do with God. Doesn't have anything to do with religion or spirituality at all. Here we see this skull here with eight, over 8,000 diamonds on it. And we think maybe it's, it's making a spiritual statement. Maybe it's saying something about the mortality of our lives. And we need God who is the real diamond. That's not it. That doesn't have anything to do with it. When his mother saw this, she said, For the love of God, what are you going to do next? <laughs> so he named it for the love of God. Now you think, why did he do this? Why would he want to sink 12 million pounds into this? Well, he did it so he could try to sell it for 50 million pounds. That's why he did it. This is called the commodification of art. The commodification of art. So what does an artist do? Not try to make some great interpretation about beauty? Not to tell us about the grand purpose or the sublime? What does an artist do? The artist is just trying to make money. That's all the artist is trying to do. And he's pretty unabashed about it. Uh, say, when we, when we went to Jerome's tomb, remember that? And at the Church of the Nativity. Was there a painting there? We went to Jerusalem this past June together. Well, you probably have seen a painting of Jerome, who is the famous translator of the Greek and Hebrew into Latin called the Vulgate, the language of the common person. Uh, and what it is, here he is, he's an old man, a scholar with a book and a, a quill in his hand, and there's a skull there. It's always associated with Jerome. That he knew he only had certain many days to fulfill his calling. And so that he put a skull there on his desk to remind him, don't waste your time. You've got something to accomplish. There's a purpose to this. And this is always in many ways, at least in Christian tradition and the Jewish tradition as well, that a skull here was a symbol not of just futility, not just of uh, the commodification of art, and not just of kind of a, a, a void to our lives. This is what we end up on. But that... Time is limited, and we need to be conscientious about what we do 
our mortality teaches us to look for eternity. But here, mortality here teaches him how to commodify art even more. Now, Robert Maplethorpe, any familiar with some of his stuff? Robert Maplethorpe. You see, he died there in 1989. Uh, I, 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 I warn you, uh, if you go look at his art, he's a photographer, brace yourself. He tried to break every custom you could think about. Now, in his early days, uh, his portraits, I thought, were magnificent. What he was able to capture in his photographs are just phenomenal. They're, they're captivating to look at him. But throughout his development, he starts to become more cynical about customs and sexual moorways in particular. And in the end, his artwork mainly becomes a mocking of the sort of standard sexual ethics of our society. And you can just imagine what he tries to do with that. Uh, but, but here is an artist, very influential. People write dissertations on him. They have exhibits of him. He was a famous person. Here he uses his art to mock society. The traditional, relation, the, the traditional notions of sexual relationships here are something to be scorned and ridiculed. And so here he uses his art to do that. Uh, it's in seclusion someplace. Uh, Hearst has not sold it. I, uh, I'm not going to try to read into that any more than just I don't know why he did it. But it was on auction at one point, and it was exhibited, I think, at the Tate Museum. If you know, it's a huge museum in London. features a lot of modern art. Um, but I'm not sure if he ever plans to bring it out in public again. But it's it's it's... I don't want to use the word icon because that is deliberately religious, but it is a symbol of our contemporary society in some ways. Don't look for any great hidden meaning to things. If you if you think that, then it should be ridiculed. And here is this, oh my, you know, for the love of God, uh, as a as a sign of that. A couple of books here quickly. I need to pick up the pace. Uh, this guy. Uh, his name is David Shields. He, he's written quite a bit. It's called Reality Hunger. This is the first book I read by him. Great writer, no doubt about it. He's a very accomplished academic. Um, uh, but he does represent modern cynicism. And I sort of summarize the main ideas of this book. Uh, one, human identity is very fragile. There's no real soul. You're almost like a reed blowing in the wind. There is no sort of basis, some sort of bedrock to our soul. We're very fragile people. Secondly, there's nothing beyond just immediate reality. This is it. What we have here today is it. Don't think that we, in a sense, become a symbol of some sort of natural law or divine purpose, some sort of rhyme or reason making its way through our lives in human culture. This is it. When it comes to it, we don't. We, there is nothing beyond and we shouldn't look for it. And in its place is art, creativity. Make yourself, just like an artist may make a canvas piece or a piece of music or a portrait or something. Well, that's, that's what you should do. You make yourself. Don't, don't, don't think a God can make you. Definitely don't you know, let anybody else make you. You should make yourself. That's a very Nietzschean idea, by the way. What, he's most what, what, what I found most provocative about him, very unsettling about him, is what he says there in 4 and 5. I mean, I don't like the other ones, but this one, there are no plots, no purpose to life or to art. The novel is dead. 
You read a novel, it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. You have characters that develop to some sort of conclusion. And his point is, there is no plot. There is no beginning. There is no end. There's just now. There, there, don't, uh, the idea that you can write a novel about, you know, three brothers dealing with the death of their father, like Dostoevsky does in Brothers Karamazov, or you can write a play about a corrupt king who, who is so vain and arrogant that, you know, he wants to divide up his kingdom based upon the daughter that flatters him the most, and he ends up exiling his favorite daughter, Cordelia, and that is in King Lear. Definitely has a plot and character. That's all bogus. That's a presumption that's not there. And so he mocks all this notion that literature has something to say to us. No, literature has nothing to say to us. All that we have is what you say about yourself. That's what he says. Now, he, he, uh, he, he's probably a great guy. I'd like to talk to him. He's very articulate. Uh, but he, he is a thoroughgoing cynic in this way, though. This other book, Philip Reef, My Life Among the Death Works. This is more a critique of the influence of cynicism in our society. He calls a lot of different artworks death works. He sees them as signs of a, of a dying culture. All right, very influential book. You've seen these movies? I've seen them. Ah, I, I'm embarrassed to tell you how many times I've seen these movies. Yeah. I'm a movie buff. I've... Uh, I used to be more than I am now, but these are representatives of cynicism in our society. Apocalypse Now. Anybody seen it? Francis Ford Coppola. I mean, it's not up to snuff as the great Godfather movies are, but it, it is a probing book. It, I mean, a movie. It is a dark movie. It, and, and like I said, if you haven't seen it and you want to see it, you know, prepare yourself. You know, make sure you... Your heart's working right, and you got your medicine under control, and everything, because it can really shatter what you think is right. It can really try to mock and undermine not only the military, uh, but human virtue, the significance of life. It's it's you know Conrad's you know the heart of darkness. It's a kind of a modern rendition of Conrad's book. It, it is it is an arresting movie. Uh, then the middle one there, the Full Metal Jacket. Anyone seen that? Oh, that's ooh. first time I saw that. I was just screaming once it was finished. By Stanley Kubrick. Uh, I don't think it's as great as 2001: Space Odyssey, but it, it is still a statement of modernity of our sort of cynical culture. Full Metal Jacket. It's about the Vietnam War, as the Apocalypse Now is. Uh, I guess in some ways they expressed. You know, the sort of melee many people felt after the end of the Vietnam War. Just as an aside, i got to pick... Uh, any of you ever see The Deer Hunter? Sure, yeah. I think it's a brilliant movie. I, I think it's a great movie. It is very hard to watch. Uh, many people saw that as kind of a critique of the Vietnam War. Other people thought in some ways it was a praise of America because it ends with them there in that bar singing God Bless America. But there was this kind of assessment after the Vietnam War, and I, I am of that era, by the way, though I didn't serve in Vietnam, uh, that, you know, there's something just wrong. You know, it, it's, it's just apocalypse now. You know, full metal jacket refers to a, a bullet. All right, who has seen Crimes and Misdemeanors? Woody Allen's movie. Um, 
I'm a semi-Woody Allen fan. Semi. Um, I think a couple of his movies are really pretty good. Hannah and Her Sisters. Manhattan, I think, is a really a good movie. But this, in my opinion, is one of the most cynical things I've ever watched in my life. Uh, just quickly, a little analysis of it. Uh, there's this man named Judah who has unhappy, uh, he kind of unhappy marriage, and he starts a long-time affair with this flight stewardess, and he, uh, she is threatening to expose all this, and she's going to go tell his wife. He's a very rich and successful ophthalmologist, and he doesn't want that, so he has her killed. And he feels kind of guilty about it all, and he's wondering what he's going to do. Okay, that's one plot. The other plot, Woody Allen is actually in it, named Cliff. He's a documentarist. He is doing a documentary of this uh, sort of pompous person, and uh, he also is unhappily married, and he wants to have an affair with this other person who rejects him, and he's doing a second documentary on a Jewish philosopher named Levy. And Levy is kind of a cynic himself. That is, he doesn't think we live in a meaningful world. Uh, and all we have is just hard work. And then Cliff gets, no, gets word that uh, Professor Levy has killed himself. And he kind of goes into despair at that. And at the very end of the movie, he gives a quote from, uh, from Levy who says that we live in a meaningless world that we try to fill with love. But the movie is even a refutation of that. Every attempt at genuine love in that movie ends up into utter disaster. It is a dark movie. Very, I mean, in, in some ways it's classic Woody Allen, uh, but it does represent a cynicism in our society. Here are some consequences of all this. Uh, first, honesty about injustices and shallowness of culture. This is where I think a Christian can legitimately be cynical in this way. We should be aware that there is corruption in our society, and cynicism tries to expose that. Secondly, it's the mocking of institutions and traditions, just like what I read out of the book Adrift. We are at a point in where these institutions are crumbling because we have been mocking them for a long time. Thirdly, the instrumentalization of truth. There is no real truth in the objective sense. They're just what you want to be true. And so truth becomes rather... Flexible, malleable. You can twist it around like a wax nose in a sense. You can get it to do anything you want to this way. So it's your truth versus our truth over here. Well, who's going to win? Well, it's kind of like what Foucault said. Who's the strongest? That's who wins. When truth becomes instrumentalized, then the way in which we solve serious, incorrigible disputes is either we hire a lawyer <laughs> or we, uh, we just duke it out. Uh, fourth, uh, an emptied self. When it boils down to it, cynicism says we're actually basically nothing. We're just an expression of the moment. And then finally, our consequences of it, and this is where we're suffering it. Isolated people living in a hostile culture. The end result of cynicism is that there is no real reason for you to bond with anything, an institution, another person. And the reason why is because we, in a sense, live in a, a, a battle zone. What, what do we have to say? What's the church's response? How should Christianity respond to this? Well, first of all, as I alluded to earlier, 
we do think the world has fallen and there is sinfulness even in the best of people. And we should never be so deceived that there can be purity. Now, you know, your wife may be pure uh, <laughs> or, or Henry's wife may be pure. Uh, but when it boils down to what goes on in society, uh, even professors who say we're guided towards objective truth and all that kind of stuff, we still have, in some ways, limited notions, vain thoughts, protected ideas. In a way, we are corrupted. Everything is that way. That's part of what the doctrine says. All people have fallen short, i.e. institutions as well, of the glory of God. And so I think we can share that. We, we, we agree with that. Secondly, uh, don't ever, ever underestimate the significance of being part of a community that is defined by love. It's the love of God and the love of the neighbor that gives us substance of people, which we, in a sense, have something to offer society, which this book Adrift is contending, and my little brief analysis of modern cynicism is contending, is not out there. It's not going on in our society anymore. There's temporary, contingent, maybe love, uh, fulfillment, but there's nothing permanent. There's nothing that's going to endure through struggle, nothing going to endure through great doubt, and worry and stress. But the church can offer that. We are bonded together, not because you and I have something in common, or I mean, our personalities in common, or our careers in common, or our socioeconomic levels in common. What do we have in common? We have the power of the love of God working through us, redeeming the world. This is one of the great things that we have to offer to our society a community of people, not just words, people living in love with one another because of the love of God. Thirdly, I think the church obviously has to offer what, what I call a thickness of the human soul. Even though we are fragile, I could die this afternoon. Even though our life is contingent, we all will die one of these days. No doubt about it. We go through great struggles and turmoil in our lives. And we begin to wonder and we question. And I don't think it stops when you're 19. I think these kind of questions per se, I'm 71 and I've... These things come at me still. Who am I? What am I up to? What's going on? Well, the church has to say, I am created in the image of God. And that's not going away. I can harm it. I can mar it with sin. But God does not take the image of God out of us. I may have great pain and I may have great anxiety. But I am in the hands of the Lord and I am promised, just like the, the Apostles' Creed says, the resurrection of the body of me. I'm going to be resurrected. That's pretty thick, isn't it? Not even death can take that away from us. And so I don't need to be afraid of all these things that cynicism says, be afraid of. Because it's haunting us. It's going to corrupt us. It's going to kill us. It's going to ruin you. It's going to control you. And I can say, well, I fear not. How many times does Jesus in the Gospels, all four Adam, say, fear not? Why? Why is it that I don't have to be afraid? of even my enemy. Because I have a thickness to me. And that's given to me by, by God, my Creator. And then finally, uh, in a sense, uh, we are a joyless people in our society. I mean, we may be happy, giddy about things, euphoric under some influence or another, but are we joyful? 
Joy is that particular gratification that comes when we know we belong. When we know we belong. Cynicism says there's nothing to belong to. But the church says, I belong. I belong in this world that God made. I belong in the community of faith. I belong in the hands of God. I belong. I'm not a stranger or an alien to this world. It's not this kind of sinister force, even though it's corrupted by sin. It ultimately is controlled by a loving, providential God. And I can have joy. And I think this is one of the great things that the church can offer to our society. Just the joy of being alive as God's creatures. The possibility of joy. More needs to be said. Uh, Any question or comment that you want to make? Anyone have another representative of modern cynicism or something? Yes. Just... Uh, what do we need to say to them? Well, um, well, first, get off Facebook. Get off all that stuff. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, if you're going to use it, use it as, let's say, a, a, a mechanic may use a pair of pliers or something. All right. Um, but secondly, um, this is where... You know, we we can take joy in sunrises. Why? Because God made it. Look at all the Psalms. How they, if anyone is infatuated with the world, the book of Psalms is, even the heavens declare the glory of God. When's the last time you looked at a moon and sang Amazing Grace? When's the last time you looked at all those stars up there and said, you know, I'm in the hands of a loving God. This is what we have to offer to them. Find that there can be joy in the this this substance of the world. Well, uh, yes and no. Yes, in the sense that uh, people who quickly assume that they're infallible are utopian, that they have the final explanation, even if it's in the name of Christianity, usually end up in tyranny. And that's true. Uh, I'm not going to say every tyrannical movement that has occurred in human history is this way, but I would say a great majority of tyrannical movements are also utopian movements. Absolute truth. So that's not our point. Our point in the church is not to establish absolute truth. That does not occur until the second advent. We are a witness to that. And so in some ways, we share that with cynicism. That We don't put all of our hope in one nation or one people or one movement. We don't. All these things have fallen short of the glory of God. However, though, what's left out in cynicism is that any notion of transcendence any notion of a truth greater than yourself. And this is where our witness comes in. There is a truth greater than ourselves. We do think there's a providence going on in the world. Anyone else? Yes, sir. One more, one last question and then we'll go. Under joy, I think our joy of knowing salvation and Jesus Right. That's true. That we have been redeemed that's right. Saved. That's a good word. Uh, all right. Well, uh, great you. grateful for you being here. Lord bless you. And if you want to, I'll be back here next Sunday to conclude this series. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.